Leading Corporate Transformation. Der Podcast der WHU Otto Beisheim School of Management. Powered by PwC. Zur Transformation von Unternehmen und ihrer Kultur. Von Entscheidern für Entscheider. Oder von Unternehmern für Unternehmer. Dear listeners, welcome to a new session in our podcast series Leading Corporate Transformation, the WHU Podcast. My name is Martin Glaum. I'm a professor at the WHU. And with me, as always, is Gori von Hirschhausen from PwC. Gori. A big hello, uh, listeners. Uh, good to be back. Uh, second episode of our second season. So looking really forward to this um, podcast. My name is Gori von Hirschhausen. I'm uh, leading our transformation consulting business in the industry sector of our consulting. And um, I'm really looking forward to this episode today because we have a very interesting company and a very interesting CFO with us. So today we will talk about Hensold, which is a stock listed company, formerly the military electronics division, which was spinned off from Airbus and has been re-established as Hensold AG. Uh, we are based close to Munich in Taufkirchen um, and uh, it's a pleasure to have the CFO of Hensold with us, who is Christian Ladurna. Christian, good to have you. Thank you, Gori. Um, yes, uh, I'm Christian, uh, 45 years old, um, Bavarian, uh, married, and since 1st of July, I'm uh, serving at Hensold AG as the CFO. I'm an Hensoldian from the beginning. That means I was part of this company since the carve out and uh, while different um, functions in the controlling area, I did my job the last five years and now having the honor to serve as the CFO. And I also can say that I was former military. That means I did the officer's career in the German Armed Forces. And uh, currently it's a really pleasure for me to combine the financial part which I'm really burning for with the military part. This is uh, very important for our company uh, to see both perspectives um, in my job. Yeah, Christian, you mentioned it straight away. There are many aspects uh, that make uh, Hensold a very interesting company. Gori mentioned a few of them, and I think we will come back to them in the course of this podcast over the next 30 or 40 minutes, however. Maybe also for our listeners, the most striking or the most, uh, you know, particular aspect of Hensel is that it is a defense or arms company. And uh, maybe it would be interesting for the listeners if you could, Christian, describe the business model and maybe the major divisions uh, of the company and give an overview over its, its portfolio of activities. Yeah, sure. Um, so first of all, we are, um, and we always call it, we're a pure sensor solution provider. That means we're really focusing on sensors technology and optronics uh, uh, technology. It's a little bit different from other companies in Europe when you think of Thales or BI systems. So they're big OEMs and have parts of sensors and optronics technology in their portfolio. So we are the only ones in Europe which only focus on these type of technology. So how is our business structured? So we have four divisions. So one division is called radar, the radar division. And what does a radar? It detects you know, things which are going on in a military scenario. Um, this was a radar does. Yeah. Um, 
and leading over to some products. Um, and our most famous one is, of course, the Eurofighter radar. That means in the nose of the Eurofighter is a radar, and this is in our responsibility. And currently, we go for an MK1. That means the Eurofighter will get a completely new radar with new features. Um, another example for radar is, for example, the TRM4D. Um, so what you currently in the news is the IRIS-T SLM solution, which is deployed to the Ukraine. And here our part is the TRM-4D. That means the radar, um, which works together with Airbus and DL to the system. Um, then we have a second uh, division. It's called Spectrum Dominance. And it seems a little bit fuzzy, but what happens in the military theater that everyone who does an operation or does a communication, um, there are some signals. And uh, from a military perspective, you always try to protect your own signals, but you also try to disturb signals from your opponent. And this is mainly what this division then does. That means it develops solutions for the self-protection, but at the other hand, also for disturbing. Plus, um, having solutions in place to collecting the signals which are out there and to combining it to one picture for reconnaissance and surveillance solutions. Then there's a third division. Um, it's uh, the Optronics, which deals with sites in vehicles, in submarines, and also in aircrafts. So pretty straightforward. And there is a fourth division that at the end of the day does services because when a solution is deployed to the customer, it's normally used for 30, 40, 50 years. And then you need maintenance, you need upgrades, you need service. And this is what this division does. From an operational model, we are project business. Um, that means we have in our revenues around 1,500 to 1,800 projects, which goes from a very small project of 1 million, 2 million, to big projects, which are, and the famous one is DMK1, with 1.5 billion. That means the project business and the project management is very important for us. And this also goes along with, in our value chain, around 40 to 50% is engineering work means really high skill, highest technology. And before we produce normally, we have a very long time of developing uh, products and solutions. And this is our business model. Mm. Sounds very complex, sounds interesting. Before we go into you know, further <coughs> details of the business model, I, I would like to approach the, how shall I say, a, a, another dimension of it, you know, the defense or arms industry is, of course, a, a matter of, of intense debate. Uh, and I can imagine that, you know, especially amongst maybe younger people, also maybe some of my students would say, you know, I would never work in an arms company. Um, Christian, you, uh, you said you have these two dimensions, the military and, you know, the finance of the company now, but you actually started your career in a, in a civil company. It was Volkswagen. Right, so you have seen both sides, and uh, what does it mean to you now to work for you know day in day out for for an arms company, a company that produces defense uh, equipment? Um, so um, I have a different perspective on it because I was a a soldier. I was uh, serving twelve years for this country, and I also was at mission. So, for example, at the Kosovo, 
And uh, for me, it was always important to have good equipment because at the end of the day, it saves your own life. And when you also look at our mission from our company, so we deliver solutions and products to people whose mission is to protect our values, our freedom. And they also have uh, said that they will risk their life uh, for our freedom and our values. And this um, uh, gives me a very, I would say, uh, honorable position to work for a defense company. And what we also see since February uh, 2022, that the awareness for defense and um, treating the defense company as an asset, which is needed to protect our freedom, our values has clearly increased. And when I also look currently around talents, which uh, look for a job, uh, that um, this has increased massively. So people who were working for Google, for Microsoft, um, now ask to work for us. So this has totally changed in the last year. And also young people really treat uh, Hensold as a very interesting company to work for. Mm. So the Ukraine war, you know, you mentioned February last year, the Ukraine and the Russian invasion in Ukraine, often termed a Zeitenwende, has uh, obviously put that into a different perspective and, and people's perspective, okay. people's perception of a company like yours has, has changed profoundly. Is that what you're saying? Yes. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, and I can also give others examples. So when we were um, in on, on roadshows, for example, or conferences. Normally we started with, yeah, we are handsold and we're doing that. And then we explained five to 10 minutes what we are doing. And uh, in the last three weeks, I was on many conferences and currently you say you are handsold and all people say, okay, understood what you do and we know you. This brings us to a question that <laughs> will be raised many times to you. Um, We, we are all aware about this big number that the German government has announced. It's the 100 billion euro investment program for our, uh, for our army. So my, my question would be, what is your perspective as Hensold, uh, um, on this? And, and what's your takeaway from, from, from this, um, announced future investment? So first of all, looking back five years, um, we were already growing and there were, I would say two or three perspectives on that. The one was that while the carver from Airbus, we were a free company, uh, which invested, for example, the double size in R&D, which increased the sales presence in the world. And this enabled us, of course, uh, a big growth in the last five years. So what we now see with the 100 billion, and by the way, also there is a commitment by Germany to then go to a direction around 2% defense spending from the GDP. So it is also clear. Here we see a big tailwind uh, for a company, which is, and we talk about a very long sustainable growth. But, and why is this the case? Because, and we talk, we all know this topic peace dividend, yeah, which we have benefited from the last mm -hmm. years. But when you're very honest, it's now in place for almost 30 years. Mm -hmm. And this has brought us to a situation where we were not able to defend our values of freedom in a, in a manner um, which we hoped for. And, uh, and this is why we see the Zeitenwende and also for our company at the end of the day, 
um, at the beginning of a, of, a, of a super cycle, which will give us enormous tailwind. Um, I think it's just two weeks ago that uh, actually there was another big signal sent to to the society and to the value that you uh, do represent for for us. Um, with the uh, with the German Chancellor Olaf Scholz, he was visiting Hensoldt, and um, what was his message? So what was he what was he telling you, and what is your <laughs> takeaway from what 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 he was saying? Yeah, uh, first of all, it was really uh, an honor for us that Olaf Scholz visited <laughs> us, and as you say, it's uh, also a strong signal to say visits us as a company. And there were a few messages. So the first of was, and this was. So very important for me personally that he sees us as a reliable partner um, for his government. And this is also how we see ourselves. So we see us as a partner for the German government. Um, there was another message that he said, okay, I've seen today highly motivated, highly skilled employees. And he feels himself, himself comfortable that we are there. So this was, from my point of view, a very another strong signal uh, towards Hensoldt. And then there were two or three aspects where you have also seen that the awareness in the government has changed. So he was talking about strategic partnerships with the German defense industry, mm -hmm. because I think what we have seen in the last months or year, that the supply chain in this regard is not the best one. That means we have to work on that in order to have a, have a robust supply chain also defense. So this was another strong signal. And of course, he asked us for how do we see as a management how to come again to a very robust industry together with the government. And uh, these were the core messages and they were very well received by us. I mean, at the moment with the Ukraine war right in our neighborhood, I think all of us have a certain sensitivity when it comes to the relevance of defense. And this is really changing the perception. And I can say for myself, it really changed my my view on how the world works in in, in, the, in the future. And But at the same time, my question is, do you believe that this, this kind of uh, higher expectation, this higher appreciation that we do see, that this will continue and this will also mean from an economic perspective for Hensoldt that you see the prosperity uh, uh, for, for your business model growing, even if, it, even if the Ukraine war comes to an end? Um, I personally say yes. Why? So let's look back the last 10 years. So there was the action of, of, the, of Crimea. Yeah. And this was, we always thought it was a kind of a wake-up call for Europe, but it was not the wake-up call at the end of the day, uh, which we, we expected. Yeah. And oh, there was so. then last year the invasion um, from the Russians to the Ukraine. And what's very interesting from my point of view, in September we were at in New York at the US Roadshow. And at the 11th of, of September I was in New York and for the 9-11 memorial. And when we talk, talked about many investors, it was a little bit compared what happened on, on 24th of February, 2022 to 9-11. So a really wake up call, a war just one or two flight hours away from Berlin 
very close. And why do I believe that it will not end when there will be peace? Because the trust with Russia we had the last years and we tried to manage this in a very trustful manner is simply gone. So hmm. it will last uh, decades uh, to come back to a situation which we had two or three years ago with the relationship to Russia. So I personally do not expect that after a peace however it looks like, this will dramatically change again, the situation. And this translates actually also in, in the business outlook that you have. Yes, yes of course. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. So Christian, the, the, given your, your business and then the, um, the products that you have, your major customers are logically the armed forces and the security forces of Germany and of other countries, yeah. especially other Western countries. Um, in other words, you know, your, your markets and, and the way you do business probably is very highly influenced by politics, by government relations and by politics. Can you explain a bit what that means in practice, how that works, how competition works in your, in your markets, you know, with whom you compete at all, if you do have competitors and how you deal with this political side of, uh, uh, your, your, your business? Um, for sure. So first of all, and let me repeat, we see ourselves as partners of the pol politics. That means the German direction of politics in every regard is also the key for our doing uh, and our, our management at the end of the day. Um, so whatever we do, we are in a very close contact, of course, to the government, to the Ministry of Defense. And this is uh, for sure the case in Germany, but this is also the case in other areas and other countries. So we deal with certain representatives in the country, which have then the direct relationship to the governments. And uh, here then we understand what is required. And there is a, a very intensive process then between the respective parties until a contract then is at the end of the day signed. Regarding competition, um, there are a few players in, in Europe, and I mentioned already, I mentioned Thales, I mentioned BAE Systems. I mentioned also Leonardo, uh, which is uh, also a competitor, and sometimes we cooperate. And this is, um, I would say, the interesting thing in Europe, that in many programs you compete, in other programs you cooperate. And this is in a case-to-case -case, uh, um, proposal, the case, and it depends on technological capabilities in terms of sizing, where you either partner or either compete. Mm. So um, you mentioned Leonardo, but before turning there, you know, another investor in your company is actually the German government, right? The German government um, has a 25.1 uh, equity stake in Hensold. Um, That's a bit unusual, right? Can you explain the rationale for that? Why the government of Germany is your one of your major investors? Mm, yes, there are a few. So one, of course, is that Germany has defined our technology as a key technology and also a technology with, which has to be protected. Um, and this is one of the, the key, uh, yeah, the key uh, reasons why they invested. But I think there is also another one, 
Um, and we have shown in the last years that we are really a reliable partner when it comes to programs and when it comes to um, other things. And this is why Germany has invested uh, 25.1 of the shares. And we, per, we, as a management board, we see it clearly as a, as a signal of trust. And uh, uh, we want to uh, keep this uh, level of trust and a very trustful relationship. Mm -hmm. So many German companies are heavily depending on export markets, right? And um, for a defense company, this is a very sensitive and, and difficult issue. And uh, there are export controls, government regulations on this. And the German regulation is, uh, you know, generally considered to be quite restrictive uh, for a company like you are. Can you explain to our listeners how this works, what you're allowed to do, what you're not allowed to do, and how you deal with this uh, issue? Yeah. Um, first of all, let me let me say that we completely um, apply our activities and operations to the German um, export regulations. It's one of the strictest in the world, as you have mentioned. Um, and how we do we deal with that? So. In the moment where we get a request for a proposal, and this request for proposal is that a country says to us, look, I would like to have this and the other solution, and please give me a proposal how it looks like, the specification, the costs, and so We have a direct contact then um, to Berlin, or um, there is an authority in place, which is called Bundesausfuhramt or BAFA, yeah, where we have direct contact to. And then it depends a little bit on the structure on the program, where either we send a so-called Voranfrage, yeah, if uh, in generally we would be allowed uh, to export there. And at the end of the day, for every solution you deploy to a foreign country, you need an export license. And there is a very strict uh, process in place between our company and the respective authorities. And only if there are many, many ticks in the boxes, um, we then deliver our uh, products to the respective governments in the world. So looking at the general economic environment that we all operate in, many of the companies we talk to, many of our clients uh, are very, very challenged at the moment with um, the energy shortage, the energy price developments, with the inflation disruptions in the commodity markets, et cetera, and, and all this uh, increasing protectism um, uh, in, in, in many countries. So my question is looking at all these things going on at the same time. So you have opportunities with the uh, high expectation on, um, on the def defense industry, but at the same time, you have the same challenges like others. How do you deal with these challenges? Mm -hmm. um, so first of all, and... Uh Let's talk about maybe supply chain and mm -hmm. inflation, because I think from my point of view, these are the most relevant for us, because regarding protectionism, we, we are very used to it as a, as a defense company to, to, to deal with protectionism. Um, so there are, well, how did we deal with that? First of all, we established quite uh, quickly when we heard of this issues which could come around, we established task forces. So we established a task force for inflation and one su for supply chain. Because the first thing what you have to do is to really understand what this means 
for your company. So you know there is a macroeconomic effect coming along. And then the first thing is that you should think I will be affected, but what does it exactly mean? Um, and I, then I, I quite like that. That's a yeah. really academic approach to things <laughs> to first of all, think it through and understand the, yeah. the phenomenon. Very good. <laughs> also yeah. very close to the heart of consulting. <laughs> I need to say. <laughs> yeah. And to be very honest, uh, there are um, some consultants who also helped us in this mm. regard because structuring it then in a way that everyone understands it, but not only to understand then the issue, but what you do with that. Now, in order to mitigate, um, you need a good structure and there are very good consultancies which, which could help us in this regard. But maybe talk about supply chain. Um, so in total, I would say that we were marginally affected. So there was a very small percentage um, of our revenues we could not do. But on the other hand, um, it's like at other manufacturers too, that at the end of the day, you have a periscope, which is normally it's there and you miss one single component and then you cannot deliver. Um, so, and, and what this task force at the end of the day does is to monitor every day um, the necessary supply we need for our products and then report us on a monthly basis in our management board. What is the situation? What is the impact? What could be the impact on our business? And really gives us here an, a good awareness. And uh, um, what I've personally learned from that, that it is, if you ask, have, would have asked me three to four years ago, supply chain, you, it's not a topic because it's <laughs> simply there. Yeah. <laughs> and, and now you have really to monitor it. And uh, what is really fascinating that we, exactly know for which programs we need which supply which components and if there was a red uh, yellow or a green traffic light uh, for us and then we can really manage on that and i would say we did it quite uh, similar to inflation also the, the number one um, topic for us was exactly to understand what it means because at the other hand of course also in other in our business you have higher costs because the cost base is simply now escalated by a different percentage and it means a higher cost base. But especially in our industry, you then have to look at the contract mm. side. That means which contract allows you to give away the inflation to the customer and which not. And uh, I can also tell you when you have 1,500 projects ongoing and not every project is with the same customer and every project has a slightly different term and condition, you really have to put your mind on what this exactly means. Um, but currently I can say that there is some impact, but it's not an impact which really makes me very nervous. Um, but in both directions, we have to keep monitoring the situation because in the supply chain, you never know what's happening tomorrow. And then the inflation, my personal view is that it's a, simply a matter of duration. So if this will really calm down in 2023, 2024, it will not have a big impact on us. If this stays on a very high level for years, then at the one or the other day, we will be also heavily be affected. This brings me to a question on, on the pricing, maybe uh, not sharing secrets, but uh, how, how, how easy is it with looking at your customer structure to increase prices because as we said so the your supply chain has changed 
this of course creates uh, another cost structure this increases the cost that you need to carry how how good do understand your customers that they, you need to increase prices um yeah first of all in our business we rely on the german uh, public price law uh, that means uh, you have a certain method in place which allows you to calculate and then also gives you the freedom to re realize certain margins and as soon as you have some higher costs it could be that you have a so-called cost plus project and then you can uh, immediately um, apply this uh, this higher cost to the customer um, but currently we are more in the fixed or market price situation mm -hmm. and that means yeah you, you negotiate a certain price and then you have to deliver um, but in many many programs then you have so-called hyperinflation clauses in and this then again allows you to hand it over okay. and this is i would say the majority of contracts we have in germany and also in europe because the european states normally apply then also the respective German price law for the contracts. We are, I would say, more or less protected. It's diff different in pure export markets, because when you go for the Middle East or Asia Pacific or South America, you negotiate a price and that's it. Mm -hmm. yeah. And if you then have different cost structure, you have to renegotiate, of course. Yeah. And this is how we are currently structured in business. Which segues uh, us to, to another topic. Um, I mean, looking at this, um, size matters, right? So um, in your market, I'm sure size is also very important. And um, one way of achieving this is, of course, through uh, partnerships and M&A uh, activities. So can you tell us a little bit about your M&A um, activities, your view on this, on past, existing and, and future alliances and corporations? Mm -hmm. Um, first, looking back, um, we started as a, I would say, strongly German, South African company. And of course, the first things we wanted to have is uh, having a good footprint in Europe. And this is, we acquired uh, companies in France and also in the UK to have in, in Europe a good, a good footprint. And I think we managed it quite well the last uh, five years, also integrating them and, and into Hensort. Um, now looking forward, uh, we have uh, a defined vectors for our M&A strategy. And first of all is that we want to look from a geographical perspective, where could we benefit from? Yeah. And of course, there are some interesting regions. Um, Europe always stays very interesting for us, but there are also other um, regions, for example, the US, because it's simply the biggest defense market in the world. And another one is, of course, Asia Pacific, because we expect that the, the tension um, will rise also in this area with all the discussions with, have with China and Japan and other topics. So, I mean, the, the yeah. staying in Europe for a moment, I don't know, I, I'm, I'm sure you can't say anything specific, but I'll ask the question anyways. There is always this talk about creating European, you know, champions that could, uh, you know, compete with or compare themselves with the American companies on, on, you know, the same level. I've read in the press that your your CEO sometimes also is asked about that, you know, is there anything, you know, I, I'm sure at the same time, it's very difficult doing this in your industry very specifically. No? 
Um, so first of all, in order to make it happen, you need a strong will by governments. And you also need a strong will, of course, by the management of the companies. From a midterm or long-term view, we have to do that. Why? Because from my point of view, with the fragmented industry, also with the fragmented nations, with the alignment processes you need, you're simply in the long run too slow to compete with American companies. And there is a, a nice example. So we were 20 years ago or even 10 years ago, we were talking about mail 2020. So this was the name of this drone, which should fly in 2020. Um, after many, many alignments and many, many structural questions, yeah, we are now in 2023. And now we've signed a contract for the Eurodrome. So now we needed 10 years in order to align ourselves for producing now a European Eurodrome. And when you now look to our American competitors, what they do in, in terms of drone technology, they are far away. Hmm. So from my point of view, it's an absolute necessity to come there. Hmm. How we will deal with that and how this will work, this is indeed a fascinating question. And I'm also honest, I cannot it answer in every in every regard. I respect that. I'll try <laughs> to pique you a little bit, though, if you may, yeah. or if I may, uh, you know, the Italian defense group, Leonardo, already holds a quarter of your shares. Uh, so yeah. would that be a partner, you know, specifically to talk to uh, when it comes to this consolidation move? Of course. Um, so um, let, let me also comment a little bit on this because there are, were also many questions. How does Leonardo see us? At, at first, um, of course, it was Leonardo's decision to take a stake at Hensoldt. So the question should also go to Leonardo. <laughs> But I also have an opinion on that. So, so first of all, they treat us as a really strategic investment. And... Uh, Also, they, they know how European cooperation and defense works. And this is a very, it's a project in the long run. And uh, then you discuss about certain technologies. So we have defined some areas and also published it, by the way, um, where we see that a combination makes, uh, makes sense. Yeah. And there are four in, in the different domains, as in the air. When you talk about the Eurofighter, there is a radar, there is a self-protection system in which we are both active and this could make sense. Um, also in terms of air defense, yeah, where we defined there are similar capabilities. And now with the requirements we see in the Ukraine, there could be another, another field. And there are other fields which we have defined and could be interesting in. Um, but I also have to clearly say it's 25.1%. It's a minority shareholder. There is no operational influence. And I personally see the exchange with uh, the Leonardo team as very fruitful. And uh, they support us in every regard. So currently, I'm quite happy with that. Hmm. Okay. So I'll move uh, to another topic now for a moment. Um, one of the uh, uh, issues we almost always talk about in these transformation podcasts is the topic of ESG. Um, that is something that concerns practically all companies nowadays worldwide and specifically in the EU. And in the EU, there is, you know, another dimension, which is the EU taxonomy. Um, what is your industry 
and your company's view on this? Um, I would really like to differentiate between ESG and the EU taxonomy. Uh -huh. um, so first of all, we talk about the ESG. And here we, as I handled and also for the management, you are totally committed to um, these things. Why? Because it's simply a duty we see towards our society. So I, as a corporate citizen, I want to uh, live in a world where also our child and the child of our child can live from an environmental perspective. Mm. I'm totally convinced that we, when we talk about diversity, when we talk about fairness and paying and other things, I'm totally convinced that we need this. And this is also part of our values. And I think when we talk about the G, the governments and protecting the governments, we as a defense company have a, a very strong view on that. And you see this also in, in the ratings. There are rating agencies we, which rate us in ESG. And when you look at our uh, websites, then you see that Sustainalytics rated as the number one benchmark last year or the, in 2021. And even in 2022, we could improve this ranking. So we're working very, very hard on that uh, day by day to really Uh, go into a very good situation in this. By the way, to be also carbon neutral until 2035 requires us to invest heavily in our sites in that regard. So this is the one where we feel absolutely committed. Mm -hmm. um, and now we come to the EU taxonomy, um, where the rationale behind is also to allocate or to, how, how should I phrase that, to have uh, certain regulations in place in order that to force the industry or companies to come to the statement. And what we currently see, I think there is a movement in the social technology, uh, social taxonomy um, regarding defense industry, um, which is, by the way, a statement we always said that securities from our point of view are prerequisite for sustainability. There is no one without. Um, And the other area I would say is that it's currently very bureaucratic for companies. So when we now look at the corporate social responsibility directive, which is then in place from 2024 onwards, mm -hmm. where at the end of the day, your sustainability report has to be, has the same regulation as a financial report in terms of auditing and so on. Um, um, we currently have high Yeah, um, we invest uh, a high amount of resources in order also to understand what is really needed and then to prepare ourselves because the reporting requirements will increase. Yeah. Am I now convinced that the EU taxonomy is the right way to come to a very good ESG standard? I currently have my doubts because it's very complicated, very difficult to understand. And also, by the way, the auditors themselves have the difficulties <laughs> to execute. Yeah. We heard that. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, I personally have an opinion that um, when you look at the classic financial structure of a company and there are agencies in place which tell banks if this company is good to invest or give them money or not. And these are rating agencies. And it could be a structure in the future that we also go for a kind of an ESG rating agencies, which are currently already operating. Mm, yeah. Yeah. And this is then a good sign for an investor to see, okay, if this company has a good ESG profile or not. But let's see how this 
ends. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure there's a lot of development uh, that still needs to go through to develop metrics, metrics, yep. and, and uh, you know, and so on and so forth. Yeah, um, but we were talking about investor, investors. <laughs> so apropos, um, looking looking at Hensold again, um, you had some very big changes in your ownership over the recent years that you exist, right? And from from the carveout out of the Airbus to the PE ownership to the IPO. So you went through all these different stages. Can you tell us a little bit about this journey? And uh, what, of course, interests a lot of listeners is um, looking at the different ownership structures, what was good in which one, what was um, more challenging in which uh, of the others. So can you can you give us also some insights on, on the pros and cons of different owners? Mm, yeah, yeah, for sure. So, of course, first of all, uh, there was KKR, uh, which, which stepped in. And uh, what was really interesting, how focused they operate. So there is a clear focus of improving and growing the business. And uh, what also was yeah, very interesting for me, how, how results orientated their work. So they really ask, okay, what is necessary to get your right products in place? What is necessary for a sales network? What is necessary also to improve your efficiency? And it's a very professional uh, way of working. So I really enjoyed this, to be honest. And I was... You enjoyed it even? Yeah. It's, it's always said that it's very, very intense. And it must be very intense, especially for the people in finance. It's it's very intense also for the people in finance. But the learning curve you have is tremendous. So mm -hmm. And uh, today I really benefit also from these mm -hmm. times. And now we come to being a listed company. Um, and of course, there are also some pros and cons. Um, And there are clear pros, pros because you have every three months uh, deliver your your results, um, and there is a good communication with investors, with analysts. And by the way, ESG is also a topic which comes from investors, and yes. it gives you as a management team an impression of what is required, and you have to make yourself your mind how you come to that. Mm. So this is a very positive thing of being a listed company. Yeah. What is a con? or could be a con is, of course, when you have to deliver every three months, yeah, that the focus on short term could be a disadvantage. Um, so I think you have always have to reflect as a management team what is really good for the company in the mid to long term um, without looking every day at the share price or thinking what happens if the one or the other KPI is not in exactly that way, uh, which an analyst, for example, uh, expects. Uh, um, and of course, uh, when you do big investments, you have to spend many weeks in order to how do we explain that, that it's understood. And there is the one or the other topic where I say, okay, this focus on short term is not, I think, the best for industries. But as long as the management team can balance this, mm -hmm and explain this, um, it's very interesting and gives also companies a good direction uh, where to manage the company too. Apropos management, so you became the CFO of Hensold on the 1st of July 2022. So um, how were the first six months? <laughs> <laughs> very intense, <laughs> I would say. Um, 
Yeah, there are there are many aspects. So for one aspect, and this was why it was very intense that I, I was working for this company five years and I had a function. So I had to go from this function out to another one. And this then means change yeah, for yourself, but also for your colleagues um, around you. Um, and of course, the focus was more from a daily work to a more strategic one. So that means to ask yourself, what is the right decision now to take in order for the company? Um, and also the perspective from a daily operational one to really a strategic one. Um, and there are other aspects, for example, when it talks to, comes to communication yeah. uh, to the capital mm -hmm. market is really intensified. Um, very high and of course you you find yourself in an environment where also have now supervisory board and have, have to establish the relationship to to this player so i can say very intense but very interesting and uh, um i i searched for this job and this is why i'm happy and uh, cannot complain about that <laughs> <laughs> so you you were following axel Salzmann and um many of our listeners know him because he's he's one of the very experienced German, let's say, prominent CFOs. And um, so, my question: what what was his 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 final advice he gave you when he handed over to you? Yeah, first of all, I have to say that it's at the end of the day, it's you cannot pay for it when you when you can work directly for such an experienced CFO, and it was yeah. more than five years yeah. on a daily. Uh, work so big thanks also on the stage to Axel, yeah. um, and I think there are there was no clear advice <laughs> he gave me, but he said, um, "You now have the full responsibility, but you can ever whenever you like you can call me." So and this was very helpful, uh, but I think there were some topics I've learned that you always should ask yourself what is good for the company. Mm -hmm. um, And a second one I really like is always anticipating what is going around you and what does it mean for your company? And this is a question you should ask yourself every day. And a third one, which I really like is always try to be at front stage. Mm -hmm. And it means before the wave is coming, try to understand what is happening. Be ahead. And be ahead. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, now when we go to inflation, And also what this means in terms of interest rates, uh, it does not help you to think about your interest rates in two or three years and then thinking, what should I do? No, you have to make your mind now uh, and then uh, to take the respective measures. So no clear advice, I would say, <laughs> but uh, some learning. But some guidance. <laughs> but some guidance. Yes, cool. <laughs> So I would like to, to address a specific uh, facet of your work as the CFO. Uh, Hensel spends a very large uh, amount on uh, R&D every year. I think I've read it's about 13% of, of revenues. Um, first of all, my question would be, is that so extraordinary high because of the current situation? Because, you know, uh, you know, there's this huge investment wave in, 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 in defense and you're you're getting ready for this? Or is this the level you always work at? Um, also longer term and also in peacetime? Um, so first of all, it increased massively since the Carhartt from Airbus. Uh -huh. So KKR gave us the freedom to invest because they wanted us to develop as a company. Um, 
when we talk about the figures now, 13%, it's, it's more or less the sum between the self-funded R&D, which is around 6% to 7% each year, and we've aimed now for the BP to around 6 and customer-funded. Uh, that means when you talk about a product like a Eurofighter radar, you have two to three years development, and this is then paid by the customer. Mm -hmm. So we have both structures in place. We develop for the customer, and we develop on our own. On our own is more than technology that we believe in. Yeah, that this is our next steps. And customer-funded is purely you get a contract from the customer. So how do we try now to control that? Because yeah, for the CFO, the biggest risk, of course, is in engineering. <laughs> that, would have been exact, that would have exactly that been my, my next question, how production. you do that with your high-tech yeah. projects and mm -hmm. all that. Um, so, yeah, how, how do we do that? We um, are in a project business. In a project business, you have to have regular milestones in order to check if you're still um, in, a, in a good mood. And this is how we deal with that. So we have some, we call it PDRs, so preliminary design reviews. We call it CDRs, critical design reviews, where after certain steps of development, the management looks at it and looks from a cost perspective, from a development uh, um, point, um, edit and see whether we are in good shape. And with this regular monitoring on the respective milestones, we um, manage also these R&D projects. So if we now switch to the, let's say, outside in view on, on your finance function itself, you do run a finance transformation digitization program at Hensel at the moment. So can you give us some, some uh, background around this, the objective, the status, the current challenges, what you have achieved so far? Yeah, first of all, maybe the why. So, and you, we have already talked about so the journey from, from a CAFA to a listed company uh, within five years uh, has a very high effort in the finance function. And we were hurrying, I would say, five years in order to come there. And the focus on ourselves was, how should I say, limited. And now we stand before digitalization, automation. So the profiles of finance finance people will change dramatically in the next years. Um, this is why we said, okay, we have to do it very structural. And then um, we went for this finance vision project where at the end of the day, we defined three work streams. And one is of course, transformation as itself plus community. Because we said when we wanna be good and strong, we have to have a strong community in place. Um, the second one was that we said, okay, we have to look, and this is especially for finance important, data management, steering model. So how we want to steer the company from a financial point of view? And what does it mean in terms of processes and data? And this is where we also see uh, a good preparation for the S4, because the change, and we will maybe talk about the change, we have to prepare for that. And the third one was then, or is, is people. Yeah, we talk about project business and we talk about business partnering. And then ask the question, okay, what is a business partner all about? What does he need to have in terms of capacities, competencies in order to be a big business partner? And at the same day, talent management, that means in order to train our young people to come there, was the third stream. 
And now I would say we are in the, yeah, we have one year mm -hmm. uh, done. And uh, we needed, I think, the first three to four months in order to work out in every work stream what we want to do. And then we had then before summer break last year a clear concept uh, in place. And now we are more in the executing phase. That means, for example, now we have exactly defined business partners. We know we have different stages and due to the complexity of the project, we ask ourselves, is the one or the other person out in our finance community able to do this job? We have now a clear talent management roadmap in place. That means we can monitor and we will monitor every year our talents in order to have the right people then in place and also to create a pool of talents where we think, okay, when there is a certain leadership position um, role open to get them in place. And at the community, uh, we have many, many formats. We have talk with the boss, we have leadership team meetings, we have different round tables where finance managers now visit our, our um, finance colleagues in order to talk to them. And um, I think when I look, currently look now at the finance community that it's getting stronger and stronger, and this is what we need for the future. One part of, of, of this, of course, and you mentioned it before, is the tech backbone. And one big uh, piece of the tech backbone, of course, is the ERP. So you already mentioned that there is a, a change from R3 to S4HANA. Can you tell us a little bit where you are in the process? Because it, it keeps actually everybody busy at these <laughs> <least> days. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah, I think uh, many or most of the listeners are aware that the R3 support will end and you simply have to change. Um, so there are mainly two, two methods. The one is brownfield. So you simply copy your existing processes to the S4 and then you work as before. And the other one is um, really complete redesign of your business processes and so-called greenfield approach. And we decided for the second. Mm -hmm. And there are many reasons. One reason is, for example, okay, if I spend 60 million without one benefit, <laughs> does not make any sense. Um, then I really spend 40, 50 million more and benefit from the yeah. S4 standard. Um, another thing is clearly that if you want to achieve this growth, which you have in front of us, we cannot simply hire every year five to 600 people and work in the same processes. Yeah. So you have to think, how do I more efficiently uh, generate information, deal with information, avoiding system breaks um, and so on. This was one reason for that. Um, and there was another reason that, for example, due to the carve outs in the private equity and the IPO, the focus on really combining all the system to one information platform, I would say was rather limited. Mm -hmm. So when we currently look for information in order to take a decision, this takes very, very long. And from my point of view, it cannot simply be the future yeah. to work like this in 10, 15 years. But you are rather still in the beginning of the of the switch, right? Yeah, now we have we had the decision to do that. We went for yeah. the supervisory board with a very strong approach to do this greenfield approach yeah. now. And now currently we are in the ramp up phase of the project. We also decided to do a so-called backfilling approach. That means we will have a project organization in place, a place which can 100% work for this project. And this will be finished uh, by mid of the year, 2023. 
And then we start with the pilot phase. Interesting. Um, yeah. We talk uh, with them, go for the global template design. And after four years, I'm quite optimistic that we will be then fully transferred into S4HANA and have a really real-time end-to-end organization. I like two things that you were saying. The one was that it needs to be very business-led to really bring something out of the investment. The other one was the backfitting aspect you were mentioning. But uh, I'm aware that you still also work on your cost structure and effectiveness overall with another program, which is very prominent in your company. It's the GO program. Maybe just, you know, two, three words around GO. Yeah. <laughs> um, so GO, there is now the third wave on going. The first wave was simply to get a self-sustaining company. The second was more an efficiency and working capital. And we will, of course, now start a Henzo Go Wave 3 initiative. Um, and as I said before, if you want to constantly grow as we were growing in the past and on, you have to do it in a structured manner. That means you have to ask yourself, are your processes robust enough? Can you go for industrialization? What does it mean in terms of functions? What does it also mean in terms of costs, of investments? And how do you manage them at the end of the day to grow, but profitable and also cash generating. Mm. And in, in making all this happen, we've decided for that we go for another wave. We mm -hmm. were, I would say, quite successful with the last two waves. And what we, what we see now as the management team after five years of waves, that it's getting also a normal situation for our company to ask yourself, is this what we currently do the right thing? Or should we change? So it's continuous improvement. Continuous in real improvement life. at the end of the day. Yeah. Okay. Good. Christian, you in, in, at several points in the talk we've had, you touched on the role of data. You mentioned that in passing several times. So what is uh, uh, data management and uh, you know usage, modern usage of data uh, analytics? What role will that play in in the finance function in the future at Hensold? Uh, It's absolute key. So, um, and I mentioned before, currently, or yeah, we improved also a little bit, I would say. But uh, four or five years ago, when we wanted to know some facts, we needed weeks until we had the facts in place. And mm. this was a fragmented data structure, different systems, and so on. So, the prerequisite for doing good analytics is a uh, very well managed data management and also standardization, harmonization. And this gives you then the ability to analyze it very quickly. Mm. So our aim is clearly to, and currently I would say that we need 50, 60% in creating the information and the rest of the time to decide to really reducing the time of creating um, the information and then really manage and take the right decisions on this information. Mm. Uh, one more specific question that would, uh, you know, be of great interest, I think, cybersecurity, you know, many people talk about it, it's a big topic generally, for a company like yours, it must be absolutely pivotal. How do you deal yeah. with it? Yeah, first of all, you can imagine that in war times, and unfortunately, we are in such a time, um, you as a defense company are treated as a, as not as an enemy. Uh, and we On a daily basis, we see cyber attacks also in our company, wow. mm -hmm. which we are currently able to defend. But 
as you say, you always have to look um, at your status and how you can improve. But this is the one aspect. The other aspect is that more and more customers require cyber-hardened products. And we see this currently. And our approach is currently that we, we have a so-called cyber GmbH in place. And what, what does the cyber GmbH now do? It uh, serves as an internal consultant for our divisions in order to talk about these topics as product safety, cyber hardening, because we're absolutely convinced <clears throat> that it will be a normal requirement from our customers that products are cyber hardened. Mm -hmm. Christian, it's, it's so interesting to talk with you about the industry, about Hensot itself, about the finance function. So thanks for all these great insights and, and all the, uh, the background information is really, really interesting. But uh, we also need to be a little bit conscious of time. So um, <laughs> what our listeners are always very interested, of course, is also the personal career of somebody who is a CFO or in a C-level. Um, so just quick to to maybe finish up our our session what would be the the big let's say three career advices you might give to somebody who is a young professional or a student to to make and have a career in finance is there anything you would say these are the top three things you should keep in mind when it comes to a career in finance yes there are a few i think the first one is you have to have be fascinated about figures <laughs> this helps love the numbers <laughs> in finance yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> all about numbers but what i also think is that the relationship between a figure and a, a macro environment or a certain what is happening in the company is then important only when you can then put this figure into the relation of the situation it's really then out of a value and then and i'm a very controller focused person then you are as a, as a controller recognized as a business partner. So it means the business context needs to be always being considered exactly. yeah. to understand what the number tells you. Yeah. Okay. So cool. this is the, the second, I think, very, very important topic. Mm -hmm. And also the higher in the hierarchy you are, the external influence factors are getting more and more and complexity is getting more. Yeah. That means you have to understand what this really means in the context. Yeah. And then, of course, I think when, when you talk about, yeah, we want to climb up the hierarchy, um, you have always to go the extra mile mm -hmm. and never ask yourself, okay, if this could be now more. So no shortcut, No shortcut? <laughs> Unfortunately, not. So not in my case. Hard work. So, <laughs> it's all about it's hard all work. It's all about hard work. I think it's also about taking over responsibility yeah. and also have a kind of a pleasure to take over responsibility. Mm -hmm. And... Um, And then in, the, in my case, it was the case that then sometimes people see that there is potential. Yeah. And, and this is what we also see in our company that people who are really doing a good job, that the moment always comes you know, where there is a step uh, forward. And this, I can only give the advice to the students, uh, work hard being disciplined, focus on your on your work and on execution, and there will be then someone who sees your talent. Cool. That's a good message. 
It's been a continuous feature of this uh, podcast. Our listeners know that, that at the end of the podcast, we ask our guest whether you have a book <laughs> recommendation or maybe a recommendation for or another podcast. Another podcast. Anything you want, would like to mention or you could mention? Yeah, first of all, I have to admit that I'm not a real good book reader. So uh, I read every day so much stuff that yeah. I, then I do different things in order to have a good work-life balance. Um, but there is one book uh, I was reading around Christmas. It's uh, in German, it's the one percentage method. And it's by James Clear. And the, the American thing is uh, Atomic Habits. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I think it's a very interesting book because it uh, describes how, yeah, how people develop. And at the end of the day, it's about habits. And then it's at the end of the day, regarding to your behavior, to your attitude and mindset. And this is really interesting. Um, how, how, he is, how he describes his self, yeah, coming from a, yeah, from a, a rather normal guy to a really professional football player at the end of the day, but simply changing his mindset and asking himself where I want to be in 10 to 20 years. Um, and regarding podcasts, so I have now a daily ritual in the morning. It's a Handelsblatt morning briefing, which oh, yeah, I really yeah. like. I it. think a lot of us uh, listen to this, yeah. Eight to ten minutes podcast yeah. and gives you exactly the... On the spot information. <laughs> on right? the spot information in a very nice style also. Yeah. Um, and I really like it. Very good. Many thanks. So this brings us to the end of this uh, uh, edition of our podcast of our podcast series a very very interesting one i would say uh, many thanks many thanks to as always to you Gori, for you know uh, all of this and especially of course many many thanks to you christian for you know featuring in this podcast today yeah that was really was really pleasure. amazing we Thank got you. across all the topics and that was was a good talk thanks christian for your time and thanks martin and uh yeah um we say to our listeners, thanks for listening if you're still on, on <laughs> online and uh, looking forward to speak to you very soon with the next session. Very good. Thank you so much. Goodbye. Das war Leading Corporate Transformation. Ein Podcast der WHU Otto Beisheim School of Management. Powered by PWC. Redaktion PwC, Daniel Wilms und Marvin Ruthmann. Produziert in den ChemWeb Digitalstudios.